Morning, everyone. How are you all doing? Good. Let me get organized here. Special hello to all my friends joining us at Mosaic. So glad that we could gather like this in community. A quick um, announcement for you all. Uh, a couple weeks ago, our good friend Waji came and spoke about Islam, and many of you have been calling the office, kind of going, is there any way that we can get more resources in regards to Islam? And so Waji's provided us with, with a video, Truth Unlocked, Keys to Reaching Your Muslim Neighbor. They are available at the Welcome Center. They're $20, and you can uh, purchase one at the end of the service. For those of you at Mosaic, we don't really have a functioning Welcome Center, so you have two options. You can grab Sean at the end of the service, and he will help you, or you can email me, and I will figure out a way to get you one. So that, again, is that video from Wajdi. Hope you can take advantage of that. We have a lot of stuff to get to, and so we're just going to get right at it. So uh, please pray with me. Eternal God, our Father, um, we're, how great you are. And uh, we're so thankful that we can gather in community around your word. And so I just pray that by the power of the Spirit, that you would reveal uh, the hope found in Scripture and the renewal and the message of truth and grace. And so I just pray that you would uh, guide us as we seek to discern truth and that you would um, to show us the full extent of your love and grace as found through faith in Jesus. May this be so right now, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This weekend, we're continuing on in our teaching series, which we are calling, What Do We All Believe? Where we're asking the question, how does the Christian faith compare with what other world religions believe and teach? Do we all have essentially the same worldview regarding God and spirituality, or do we have distinct and separate faiths? Over the last three weeks, we've looked at Buddhism, we've looked at Islam, and we've looked at Hinduism. And now today, we'll be comparing the Christian faith to the beliefs and practices of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who most of you know more as the Mormons. By any form of measurement, the LDS Church is the most successful new religion in the world with over 14 million members. And it is a faith which continues to evolve in their own understanding. So let me quickly illustrate. Like some of you, I grew up in Calgary and went to uh, Sir Henry Wisewood High School. And there, growing up at Wisewood, I had many Mormon classmates and friends. And I remember this specific kind of incident in uh, grade 10 math class. In Mrs. Rhodes' math class, I sat in the very back left corner. And so I was here in the back corner, and in front of me was a guy named Rob. And right beside me was this bright, good-looking Mormon kid named Blake. And then he had two Mormon buddies beside him. And so... We're sitting there, and it's Monday morning, and so we're kind of all talking before class, and everyone's telling what they did on the weekend. And so we're sharing about weekend stories, and it seems like everyone in our class had a little too much alcohol on the weekend. And so they're all sharing these crazy stories, when finally someone says, is there anyone here who didn't get hammered this weekend? And me and the three Mormon guys put up our hands. It was just kind of a conversation in the back of the class. But even in the back part of the class, it was just me and the three Mormon guys. And so Rob, who was in front of me, had known me for a few years. And so he goes, oh, that's right. You're a Christian, aren't you, Kel? And I said, yeah. And he goes, oh. He goes, And then he looks at Blake and he said, are you guys Christians too? And Blake said, no, we're not Christians. We're Mormon." What's interesting about that conversation is if that conversation took place today, most likely Blake's response would have been, yes, we're Christian, 
were Mormon. Somewhere in the last 25 years, Mormons have gone as presenting themselves as a separate, distinct faith to now presenting themselves as another Christian denomination, but one which has, as they would explain it, the fullness of the gospel. Which leads us to ask, is the LDS Church a Christian denomination? Are Mormons Christian? And so this weekend, we're going to take a closer look at the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, seeking to answer the questions, what do Mormons believe? Is the LDS Church a Christian denomination? And finally, is Mormonism true? And here's how we're going to answer these questions. Here's kind of the outline for today. Together, we're going to take a look at the history of the LDS Church, the essential teachings and theology of Mormonism, and how they live out their faith. And then we'll conclude by looking at the areas of agreement and disagreement between Christianity and Mormonism so that we can come to a consensus around the question, are Mormons Christian? And we'll begin today by looking at the birth of Mormonism. The LDS Church was founded in 1830 by a man named Joseph Smith. When he was 15, Smith writes that he was praying in the woods near his home when he received a vision of God the Father and God the Son visiting him. These personages, as he called them, explained to Joseph that all of the present-day churches were apostate and that their beliefs were all wrong and that a new church was needed to reestablish the true gospel in these the later days, and that Joseph was the one to start and lead this new church. Then three years later, in 1823, a resurrected being named Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith and told him of some golden plates that were buried in upstate New York, which contained the history of the ancient inhabitants of the Americas. And now in order to give you kind of a fuller picture of the history of the Book of Mormon, we have a short video for you. Enjoy. In Joseph Smith's own words, on the evening of the 21st of September, 1823, I discovered a light appearing in my room. Joseph Smith goes on to describe this light as a messenger sent from the presence of God and that his name was Moroni. Moroni said that there was a book deposited, written on gold plates, and hidden on a hill called Cumorah, located in upstate New York. On the west side of this hill, Smith says, not far from the top, under a stone of considerable size, lay the plates deposited in a stone box. Moroni tells Joseph that these ancient plates contain an account of the former inhabitants of this continent and the source from whence they sprang. For the next three years, Joseph Smith said he was given divine help in translating these gold plates into the Book of Mormon. The story begins in the first book of Nephi, with a Hebrew family fleeing the city of Jerusalem around 600 B.C. The father of this family was a man named Lehi. His youngest son was named Nephi. Nephi writes in 1 Nephi chapter 17, verse 8, that the Lord spake unto me, saying, Thou shalt construct a ship after the manner which I shall show thee, that I may carry thy people across these waters. After the ship was completed, Nephi says, We did put forth into the sea, and were driven forth before the wind toward the promised land. The notes suggest that this Hebrew family landed in the Americas about 589 B.C. Because a narrow neck of land is often described in the Book of Mormon account, Central America is where most LDS scholars have taught that Lehi's family landed in the New World. 
2 Nephi 1.8 speaks of the Americas as being uninhabited when it says, It is wisdom that this land should be kept as yet from the knowledge of other nations. Soon after arriving in the Americas, a division happened between Nephi and his oldest brother Laman. From this division, two separate nations emerged. Those who followed Nephi had God's favor and were called Nephites. Second Nephi 5.21 describes the Nephites as being white and exceedingly fair and delightsome. The Book of Mormon teaches that the Nephites were a sophisticated people who grew into a large civilization. Helaman 3.8 describes how the Nephites populated the American continents when it says they began to cover the face of the whole earth, from sea south to the sea north, from the sea west to the sea east. Mormon 1.7 says of the growing Nephites, the whole face of the land had become covered with buildings, and the people were as numerous almost as it were the sands of the sea. The other nation grew from the people who followed Nephi's rebellious older brother, Laman. They were now called Lamanites. Second Nephi 5, verses 21 and 24 says of the rebellious Lamanites that the Lord did cause a skin of blackness to come upon them, and because of their cursing which was upon them, they did become an idle people full of mischief. The Book of Mormon at times describes the Lamanites as being even more numerous than Nephites, but far more primitive. 3 Nephi chapter 11 describes the Book of Mormon's crowning event when Jesus Christ appears in the sky when he visited the Americas around 33 A.D. Jesus brought 200 years of peace between the Nephites and Lamanites. Then war broke out again as the Lamanites grew in strength and began to annihilate the Nephite race. By the year 326 A.D., the general of the Nephite army was a man named Mormon. In Mormon 6.2 he writes, and I, Mormon, wrote an epistle unto the kings of the Lamanites, that we might gather together our people unto the hill, which was called Cumorah, and there we could give them battle. In this final battle on the hill Cumorah, the Lamanites completely destroyed all of the Nephites. As recorded in Mormon chapter 6, when the Nephite casualties from the battle on the hill Cumorah are added up, they number 230,000. Mormon's son, Moroni, was the only Nephite to escape alive. This is the same Moroni who appeared to Joseph Smith as the messenger from heaven more than 1,400 years later. Moroni hid the golden plates, but before doing so, he added his own written accounts to them. In Mormon chapter 8, verses 2 through 9, Moroni writes that after the great and tremendous battle at Camorah, behold, the Nephites who had escaped into the country southward were hunted by the Lamanites until they were all destroyed. And my father also was killed by them, and I even remain alone to write the sad tale of the destruction of my people. Therefore, the Book of Mormon ends with the Lamanites being the sole surviving race of people living in the Americas. This is why the title page in the Book of Mormon declares that it is specifically written to the Lamanites, who are a remnant of the house of Israel, and also why the introduction page in the Book of Mormon concludes that, after thousands of years, all were destroyed except the Lamanites, and they are the principal ancestors of the American Indians. 
All right, so there's a kind of a quick summary of you of the story of the Book of Mormon. Now, I'm sure most of you have never heard that before, and so I'm just going to quickly summarize it for you, even again, just so you kind of get the main part. The Book of Mormon tells the story of some ancient Israelites who fled Jerusalem around 600 B.C. They sailed to the Americas where they grew up into two large feuding civilizations, the Nephites and the Lamanites. The crowning event for these nations was when the resurrected Jesus appeared to them around 33 A.D. to establish his true church and his true doctrines. But eventually the rebellious Lamanites wiped out the Nephites so that the Lamanites were the only ones that left and are the principal ancestors of the North American Indians. Finally, after the true gospel was lost over, 1500, or over 1,400 years, God appointed Joseph Smith to restore these lost doctrines of Jesus. And in time, Joseph Smith was visited by Peter, James, and John so they could restore the Melchizedek priesthood to him so that true apostolic authority could be passed down through the LDS church. All right, so are you with me? So that's essentially the Book of Mormon story and the beginnings of the LDS church. We will now go on to the essential teachings and theology of Mormonism, and we'll begin by looking at the Mormon scriptures. The LDS church has four books they consider scripture, and you can get them all in one book like I own here, and this is uh, kind of the LDS version of a study Bible. The first scripture in this book is the King James version of the Bible, but they only consider it scripture as far as it's been translated correctly. You see, the LDS church teaches that the Bible has been corrupted by careless translators, and that many of God's original doctrines and covenants were lost or removed from the Bible. So Joseph Smith did his own translation of the Bible where he made thousands of changes to the King James Version. Yet despite all these changes, the Bible is still considered by the LDS church to be subordinate to their other scriptures. Next in here, we find the Book of Mormon, what the LDS church describes as another testament of Jesus Christ translated from the golden plates as shown to Joseph Smith. You just heard the whole story, so we'll move on to the next one. And that is, the third one is the doctrine and the covenants, which are considered modern revelations of God as given by God directly to Joseph Smith. These revelations are said to contain what was missing or lost in the Bible, and thus are considered to be the restored doctrines and covenants in these the later days. And finally, at the end here, we have the Pearl of Great Price, which is the smallest of all the Mormon works. Again, it is more revelations of God given directly to Joseph Smith regarding doctrine which has been restored in the latter days. In addition to these four works of scripture is the president of the Mormon church who presides over the whole church. The president is considered a modern-day prophet like we would consider Moses who has direct contact with God the Father. Thus, in the LDS view, no scripture is complete because God can reveal to the Mormon president where doctrine or practice needs to be revised. And so that's kind of a summary then of Mormon scripture and authority. And so now we're going to go on to some key doctrines of the LDS church. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to present uh, some key individual doctrines that Mormons believe, and then I'm going to kind of bring them all together at the end and kind of try to show you the big picture of how it fits together in Mormon theology and practice. And so we begin with the doctrine of God, the doctrine of God. 
First off, Mormons do not believe in the Trinity as we would, but view the Godhead as three separate gods. They believe God the Father has a body of flesh and bone, that God the Son has a body of flesh and bone, and that the Holy Spirit is a male personage who is a spirit. In their view, God the Father, who they probably would be more likely to call our Heavenly Father, God the Father was once a mortal man, the same species as us, who lived on another planet, but who now is an exalted or glorified man, meaning through spiritual development, he progressed over a long period of time from manhood to godhood. God also has a wife, and they are our heavenly parents. Jesus, in the Mormon view, like all us humans, Jesus existed before his mortal birth. He was born as a spirit child of our heavenly parents. And Jesus was the firstborn of all of us spirit children so that he is considered our older brother in the spirit world, in the kind of the pre-mortal world. More on that later. But as a mortal on earth, Jesus is different than us because he is considered the literal offspring of God. Jesus is considered to have 23 chromosomes from Mary, 23 chromosomes from God the Father. So he is literally God's son. And like God, Jesus progressed over time to a divine personage who is totally separate from God the Father. By the way, much of what I'm sharing is direct teaching from BYU professors Stephen Robinson and Robert Millet. Next, salvation in the Mormon view. There is no sin nature, but each human has committed specific acts of sin. Salvation is possible because of Jesus' atonement. Jesus' atonement brought universal grace, what they call universal grace, and what they define as a resurrection power for everyone. Beyond that... Humans must earn their place in one of the three different heavens. And the core creed around this understanding is, as man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. And this is such a core part of kind of their belief around salvation. I want us to all say it together in Clyde-like fashion. So if you could say it with me, as, as man is, I almost said as Clyde is, as man is, God once was, as God is, man may become. In Mormon understanding then, men and women can become as God through spiritual development and can attain Godhood so that eventually they can create and populate their own world and have their own eternal offspring. This is the fullness of salvation or what they call exaltation that they believe in. And it begins with faith in Jesus, but then is earned through fulfilling the restored doctrines and practices of the LDS Church, which would include, but would not be limited to, living a virtuous and honest life, obeying the words of wisdom, which mean abstaining from alcohol, tobacco, um, caffeine, drugs, faithfully tithing 10%, being baptized by one who has the restored authority of the LDS Church, doing temple works such as baptisms for the dead and being married in the temple for time and all eternity. If you do all these things faithfully, it is possible that over time you can progress to become a God so that you and your spouse can create and populate your own world. 
Again, in the LDS understanding, this is the fullness of the gospel which was restored to Joseph Smith in these, the latter days. And so now what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to bring kind of all this info that I've just given you together so that you can understand the big picture of LDS doctrine and the flow of Mormon practice. And so if I could have the flow chart, please. Well done. Thank you for the flow chart. And so on here, I don't know, this chart explains to you um, the Mormon plan of salvation and how they understand eternal progression. So we're going to start at the top left of the chart, and I don't know if you can read it, but then we're going to move down and then back up in kind of a, a big U fashion. So top left of the chart, it's labeled intelligence. Mormonism teaches that before our birth in the spirit world, everyone, including God, existed as eternal matter, or what is sometimes called ethereal intelligences and that these intelligences are the building blocks for our birth as spirit children. Honestly, I don't totally understand this stage or this component, but what I want you to, to hear here is that in their understanding, matter is eternal, but God is not. We move down to the spirit children stage, where according to Mormonism, at some point in the distant past, a man of holiness on another planet progressed to become God and our heavenly parent, our heavenly father. Then our heavenly parents began to have spirit children where we were all born to them in this pre-existent life. At this point in our existence, we are happily in God's presence. But in order to begin the journey towards eternal progression and eventually godhood, we had to receive an earthly body. So, according to LDS teaching, those spirit children who qualify are given the chance to be born on earth, where life is a test of faithfulness and obedience. Those who embrace the Mormon gospel may qualify for eternal progression to godhood. Those who don't embrace the Mormon gospel will be assigned a lower level of heaven depending on how they lived. In the bottom middle there, you see two rectangles. The first one, the top one is called paradise. The bottom one's called spirit prison or sometimes hell. Mormonism teaches that after we die on this earth, each person's spirit ends up in one of these two temporary locations. Generally, um, paradise is for those who lived the Mormon gospel on earth, and the spirit prison is for those who did not. And we wait here until the resurrection. During this period of time, though, the faithful Mormons in paradise, while working on their spiritual progression, will do a form of missionary work and come and visit us in the spirit prison and try to help us accept the Mormon gospel. As we work our way up the right side, we eventually come to the resurrection and we face judgment, where we will find out which of the three heavens we have qualified for. The bottom heaven is known as the telestial kingdom. It's reserved for the wicked of the world, the liars, the adulterers, etc. It's believed to be a pleasant place to end up, but it pales in comparison to the other two kingdoms. The middle heaven then is known as the terrestrial kingdom, where people go who were good and honorable people on earth, but who rejected the gospel of Mormonism. It's also the heaven where Mormons who are not faithful end up. So it's kind of considered the heaven of decent folk like us and underachieving Mormons. So <laughs> anyways, they consider this to be a paradise, but again, it pales in comparison to the top kingdom. 
And the top heaven is known as the celestial kingdom and is reserved for faithful Mormons only. The celestial kingdom itself is divided up into three levels, or at least they used to teach that. I'm not sure if they still do. The bottom two levels are for faithful Mormons who did not marry in the temple, while the top level of the celestial kingdom is for faithful Mormons who get married in the temple according to the doctrines and the rites of their faith. These top-tier celestial kingdom Mormons are the only ones who qualify for full exaltation or progression to godhood. All right, and so there you have a quick summary of Mormon doctrine and theology. Are you all with me so far? Are you all with me? Well done. The other groups weren't, okay, that's good. That's good. Okay, well, before we begin to compare the LDS doctrine to traditional Christian doctrine, I just want a few words about Mormon people themselves. If you grew up with Mormons like I did, you know that there really are so many things that are admirable about Mormonism and about the Mormon people as individuals. Our Mormon friends live out what it means to be a faith community as well as any group anywhere in the world. They do community well, and we could learn a thing or two from them regarding them. Our Mormon friends love their families, and they make their family the priority of their life. They're devoted to their faith and their church being service and missions-minded. They care about their neighbors and are involved in community projects and organizations. And they're morally upstanding citizens. They're honest and friendly and helpful. And there's, there's much to admire about the lives of our Mormon neighbors. But the question remains, are Mormons Christian? How does the LDS doctrines compare with Christianity? And the answer is, it simply isn't possible to detail all the areas of disagreement there are between Christian theology and Mormon theology. And so I'm just going to focus on kind of some of the main points. First, in regards to Scripture. LDS has four standard works of Scripture and believe the canon of Scripture is open because God continues to speak new revelations when needed. But Christianity believes that the canon of Scripture is clothed closed, and that only the Bible is God-breathed. In regards to God, Mormons believe that God the Father was once a mortal man, the same species as us, who lived on another planet, who worshipped the God of that planet, and then spiritually developed over time to become a God, that God the Father has a body of flesh and bone, that matter is eternal, but God is not. But the Bible teaches that there is only one God who has existed eternally, who is unchanging, who created out of nothing everything that exists, and that there has never been a time when God was not completely God. And as you look at that slide there, the Mormons and traditional Christianity, we are talking about two completely different gods. We are not talking or following or teaching the same God. Isaiah 43 verse 10 states this, Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, the one true God. In regards to Jesus, the LDS church teaches 
that Jesus is a created being, that he is our older brother in a pre-earth life, that Jesus had to earn his own salvation, that Jesus, like God, progressed over time to become a divine personage who is totally separate from God the Father. But biblical Christianity teaches that Jesus is fully God, that Jesus is one with the Father, that because he is God, Jesus didn't need to be saved, that Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega without beginning and without end. And again, if you look at this slide, the doctrine of Jesus, Mormons and Christians are talking about two different Jesuses. We worship and we follow a different Jesus. The Gospel of John, the Gospel of John starts with these words. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. We move on to salvation. Mormons believe that Jesus' atonement brought what they call universal grace, which they define as a resurrection power for everyone. But then we all have to earn our place in heaven. And I just, I just want to camp out here for a little bit because this is a core difference that I think is important to explain clearly. Our differences regarding salvation, when you take away kind of the whole flow chart I showed, our differences regarding salvation comes down to how we understand grace, how we understand grace. If you grew up in the Christian church, grace has always been understood as unmerited favor from God. But listen to the key Mormon verse on grace. It is found in 2 Nephi chapter 25, verse 23. And this is what it reads. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. After all we can do. And just to make sure we're kind of understanding what they're saying, we have grace defined uh, by the Bible dictionary that comes in the LDS kind of study Bible here. And so this is how the LDS church defines grace. This grace is an enabling power that allows men and women to lay hold on eternal life and exaltation after they have expended their own best efforts. Grace cannot suffice without total effort on the part of the recipient. Hence the explanation, it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. And in case there's any doubt about this position, here's what former Mormon president Spencer Kimball wrote about grace. One of the most fallacious doctrines originated by Satan and propounded by men is that man alone that man is saved alone by the grace of God. That belief in Jesus Christ alone is all that is needed for salvation. Yet when we come to the Bible and we open the scriptures, we read that the Apostle Paul, when he was writing to the Ephesian church, wrote this, Ephesians 2 verse 8. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And let me just illustrate this truth with one of Jesus' parables. If we flip to Luke 18, Luke 18, a familiar parable beginning in verse 9. 
It reads, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Verse 10, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give all the tithes that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. Biblical Christianity teaches there is, no, there is nothing we can do to earn God's acceptance. There is nothing we can do to earn God's salvation. But that salvation is a free gift given to those who believe that Jesus has fully paid their debt and turn in faith to the only eternal God. We are saved by grace alone. And as you look as you look at the Mormon and Christian understandings of God and Jesus and salvation and grace, not only is it obvious that Mormonism is not another Christian denomination, there's really no way around the fact that Mormonism is a religion of works, that at its core, Mormonism is a religion of works based on self-effort and in the end, self-glorification. Again, the central purpose of LDS doctrine is to qualify for exaltation, to become your own God of your own world. Yet as I read the Bible, I'm told that this root of the sin within me is this desire that I have to play God. Genesis 3 tells us that the temptation that humanity faced in the fall was to stop trusting in the eternal creator God and instead to depend on themselves as they sought to play God. This is what it reads, Genesis 3, beginning in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This sinful desire that continues to claw at my heart is a desire to depend on myself in all things, to be the boss of my life, to be the Lord of my life, to be God in all circumstances, that I decide what's right and wrong, that I choose what I will do or what I will not do, instead of submitting in rightful dependence to the one true God. And you know, when you get down to it, when you get down to it, there really is nothing remotely similar between Christianity and Mormonism. We just, have, we just use the same words to describe stuff. We just use the same words. The LDS church is not just another Christian denomination. And more than that, and more than that, when we look at the doctrines and beliefs of each faith, both cannot possibly be true. It is not possible for the Christian view of God and life and faith and the Mormon view of God and life and faith to both be true. So is Mormonism true? The best way to answer that question is to look at the Book of Mormon, which their prophet Joseph Smith called the most correct of any book on earth and the keystone of our religion. So is the Book of Mormon trustworthy? I suggest to you that no, it isn't. 
Let me start by comparing it to the Bible. In the Bible, we have the nation of Israel. We have cities like Jerusalem and Bethlehem. We have you know, bodies of water like the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River, all of which have been clearly identified and validated by archaeology, etc. We have thousands of Greek manuscripts and fragments of manuscripts of the New Testament books, some dating back to within 50 or 75 years of the original writings. And even if we didn't have a single manuscript, we could assemble all but 11 verses of the New Testament from the writings of the church fathers who quoted the scriptures you know, so frequently. In addition, we have thousands of ancient artifacts and ancient inscriptions which reveal the historicity of the biblical account. In the New Testament, which covered approximately the same time period as the Book of Mormon covers, virtually every city, nation, and form of currency has been found by archaeology. Again, for instance, if we look at the books, the New Testament books of Luke and Acts, which were both written by Luke, the Dr. Luke, he records 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands. All have been found and verified by archaeologists. The Book of Mormon, though, has no such corroborating evidence. And it's, it's not... Let me repeat that last one. The Book of Mormon has no such corroborating evidence. And it's not just that we don't have the golden plates that Joseph Smith translated from as he says they were lifted back into heaven. And it's not just, it's not just that no ancient copies of the Book of Mormon have been found or that no Book of Mormon cities have been located or that no Book of Mormon names have been found in New World inscriptions, or that no inscriptions have been found in Hebrew in America, or that no inscriptions have been found in Egyptian in America, or anything resembling Joseph Smith's reformed Egyptian, or that no ancient inscriptions have been found to indicate anyone in the ancient Americas had any Hebrew or Christian beliefs. It's not just those things. It's that we have no evidence whatsoever to corroborate the Book of Mormon story. You would think that a book that details over a thousand years of history would have something to, you know, kind of validate its claim. We have nothing. And, you know, it's not that we don't know anything at all about the ancient Americas. It's that everything we know about the ancient Americas contradicts the Book of Mormon. For instance, the whole story of the Nephites and the Lamanites being the lost tribes of Israel and being the primary ancestors of the American Indians. For decades, the archaeological evidence and the anthropological evidence and the linguistic evidence has been saying that North American Indians, or First Nations people, came from Siberia and Mongolia. And now in the last 10 years, the genetic evidence, the DNA evidence, has come to the same conclusion that the ancestors of the North American Indians did in fact come from Siberia and Mongolia. And when you look at this all together, when you look at the totality of the lack of evidence, we can't but conclude that the Book of Mormon is not a reliable historical record. And if the Book of Mormon is not, I'm really killing the kids today, hey, I'm surely. <laughs> to the rest of you, if you could just hold on a couple minutes, I'll try to, yeah. Let me go back. Taken all together, there is, with all the, the lack, the totality of the lack of evidence, 
there's no other way to conclude except that the Book of Mormon is not an accurate historical record. And if the Book of Mormon is not a historical story, then the lost tribes of Israel never sailed to the New World. And if the Nephites and Lamanites never existed, then Jesus never appeared to them. And if Jesus never appeared to these people who didn't exist, then the restored gospel of Joseph Smith is untrue. Joseph Fielding Smith, the 10th president of the LDS Church, wrote this. Mormonism, as it is called, must stand or fall on the story of Joseph Smith. He was either a prophet of God, divinely called, properly appointed, and commissioned, or he was one of the biggest frauds this world has ever seen. There is no middle ground. As we wind down, I just want to show you a two-minute film clip from an interview with a Mormon scholar named Thomas Murphy as he discusses the implications of this lack of evidence. And I just want you to note how badly he wants to remain Mormon, but yet how he knows it can't be true and how he's kind of grappling with coming to terms uh, between these two things. And so, here you go. We are in a dilemma now. The genetic evidence shows clearly that American Indians are not Hebrews. They are not Israelites. The archaeological evidence shows the Book of Mormon is not true. We as Mormons were mistaken about who American Indians are and where they came from. We have based our beliefs upon uh, the Book of Mormon, which we thought was an accurate ancient historical record. The genetic evidence has pretty conclusively shown that that is not possibly the case. Uh, we ha because we gave it the status of the Word of God, we have to change what we mean by the Word of God. And that's a dangerous prospect for any religion to do. Uh, and I don't know that many Mormons would accept that as a possibility. Uh, but there isn't a lot of alternative. We're, we're caught with the evidence clearly showing that the Book of Mormon is not what we have believed it to be. I think, to be honest, we have to admit them, and we have to stop pretending that they're, that they're not there. We need to stop looking for plausible reasons that the evidence doesn't exist. And I think we need to acknowledge a 19th century origin of the Book of Mormon. That is, we can, I think, admit that Joseph Smith produced the Book of Mormon in the 19th century. And I, I as a Mormon scholar, am not afraid to say that. Uh, I know I'm not alone. I've talked with bishops and stake presidents who feel similarly. Uh, I know many Mormon scholars who have publicly as well as privately shared a similar point of view. I think the most difficult problem with a 19th century view of the Book of Mormon is that we have to confront not just the possibility but the almost inevitability that Joseph Smith was attempting to deceive people, at least at certain periods of time. Uh, when he pretended to have uh, actual plates, for example, uh, it's pretty clear that he was being deceptive at that time. And I think that's the most difficult problem we have to face. 
I don't know that there is a way out of that problem. Mormons, as a group of people, are both the nicest people you'll ever meet. They're honest and friendly and morally upstanding. They care about their neighbors. They get involved in their community. They love their families. They're devoted to their church. But they're mistaken about the Book of Mormon. And they're mistaken about the restored doctrines of Joseph Smith. And they are preaching a religion of works. The Bible, though, tells a different story. One of an eternal God who created humanity for the pleasure of knowing us and interacting with us and being known. And though we've all rebelled through acts of treachery against him, he is so filled with love for us that he continues to seek out relationship to the point of becoming one of us. That the Son of God would offer himself as a sacrifice, not something to be earned, but a free gift of grace where our debt has been paid in full that we could be reconnected in relationship with him and live with God forever and eternity. Do you know this God of love? I'd just like to close the day by focusing on the core tenets of the faith that the Christian church has always taught. 17 centuries ago, the Council of Nicaea concluded with the formation of a creed to briefly express orthodox Christian beliefs. And ever since, it's been recited by Christians all over the world as an expression of faith. And so, if you would, if you'd stand with me right now, and you too at Mosaic, if you could stand as well. And together, let's read this ancient creed, recognizing the richness in its meaning. Let's read together. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men, for our salvation, came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father, and shall come, come with glory to judge the quick and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets, and I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and life of the world to come. Amen. Pray with me. Eternal God, our Father, we do believe these words to be true. We do believe that you are who you say, and we just thank you for the gift of your word which tells of your desire to reconnect with us and breathe life and renewal and growth within us. And so, Holy Spirit, fill me that I may be renewed in your image, that I may be so filled with your love that I can't help 
but love my neighbors in this hurting world. May we together be a community that proclaims the truth that the grace of Jesus Christ is all that is needed. Thank you for your love and faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.